Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancers. And uh, today I have the great pleasure of conducting the podcast with uh, Dr. Ainoa Madariaga and uh, Dr. Robert Coleman uh, regarding the 2023 IJGC uh, special issue that is going to be published on, on March 6th. And uh, this is a, a really exciting uh, special issue for us, uh, obviously, given the impact of novel therapies in gynecological cancer. The title of the special issue is Novel Therapies Leading to a New Landscape in Gynecologic Tumors. So welcome, Ainoa and Rob. And I want to first uh, thank you so much for all of the time and effort that you have dedicated into this really wonderful issue that I know is going to be of great interest to the community of gynecologic oncologists. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much, Pedro. It was a pleasure to participate in the special issue. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. And and uh, really grateful that you're using the word. It was a pleasure to participate in this special Yeah, issue. yeah. Because we appreciate, I know. We appreciate you. Oh, sure, I'll do it. No problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I know it's a, a lot of work, um, but I think that the final product is uh, it's a really wonderful piece for, for our community in gynecologic oncology. Um, and I wanted to just, you know, go through the topics that, that we're covering. And, you know, one of the things that, that I uh, felt we we should uh, um, target is is how how these topics are impacting our field. Um, obviously, without getting into the granular details of each and every single um, article, and um, and we wanted to um, address uh, topics of relevance and and topics that we felt would be of value uh, for our community of gynecologic oncologists, but also for our patients as well. So I wanted to start with uh, um, one of the first topics that is covered in, in this uh, month's uh, special issue on genomic testing in high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Um, what, are, what are some of the current options and the future development? And perhaps like um, starting by saying, like, w why is this important uh, in gynecologic oncology uh, today? So, um, uh, Rob, I'll start with you, and then uh, yeah. I know if you uh, yeah. wanted to provide also your input as well. Yeah, thank you so much, um, Pedro. The um, I, I think um, for those who have been around the gynecologic cancer space for a long time know that you know we spent a fair amount of effort in um, getting it, the realization that, for instance, BRCA mutation status in the tumor was going to be very important to treatment, and not so much because it had a prognostic implication, but with the development of the PARP inhibitors, it had a predictive implication. In other words, we would align tumors with this alteration with a drug therapy that should work. And so that was kind of the start. And, you know, of course, when that happened, it ushered in this whole era uh, from about 2009 until, until really today, where we've continued to uh, understand more about the molecular biology. And I love the fact that you use the word targeted um, in your opening comments, because that's really what this is about. It's about aligning um, therapy in a very precise way, precision medicine, if you will. Um, and, and this was one of our very first successes. Uh, and so uh, we thought it was really important to start off the issue uh, with this, um, you know, with this topic, because it's been so relevant today, not only in the positive, but also in what we've, what we've uh, you know, recently talked about in the negative, about how this potential impact might have, and uh, how this therapy might have an impact on future therapies. So so again, very, uh, really important, very timely um, to, uh, to understand, you know, how molecular testing will actually continue to alter that landscape as we go forward. 
Fantastic. And uh, I know, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Totally agree. And another important aspect of the molecule of the genomic testing is the, the germline one. Like on this special issue, we also talk about the importance of, of BRCA testing or, or uh, germline testing to all the patients with, with high risk ovarian carcinoma and also highlight the differences that maybe according to, to the country where the patient is. So I think that's a really important issue that germline testing or well, somatic and germline testing according to the, to, to, to the results of the somatic testing should be available uh, to all our patients with high risk ovarian cancer because it has an important implication not only on the treatment but also on the on preventive strategies for them and their families. Yeah, and I know uh, uh, just to follow up on that, I think you brought up a, a really good point. And I think, obviously, as you know, many of our listeners are in low and, and middle income countries. And uh, do you both uh, see that there's going to be uh, or, or do you see a movement towards um, having these this type of information for for all patients rather than patients that are just uh, obviously seen in major academic centers mm -hmm. in high income countries? I, I think that there was a paper in IGGC published last year, uh, including like patient interviews from all over the world, but mainly patients from high-income countries were were uh, included in that in that paper, and they, uh, and it was showing how different access is across the world, and even in high-income countries, there were huge differences. Being in the, the U.S., the the highest percentage of gen, of germline testing, and in other high-income countries, it was quite low. So I think that that this should be learned. All, like in low, middle, and, and high-income countries, and and we have lots to to improve regarding this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just add. You know, the what was we saw this last year was an expansion of of uh, non-commercial or so not so mm. academically led, but non-commercial HRD testing. Um, and now, uh, just recently, saw another two uh, renditions of this, uh, making this access. Uh, much more feasible uh, because of the opportunity to be able to do that in, um, you know, in labs that aren't, are, are not commercial. Excellent. So the next topic I wanted to uh, cover because it's also highlighted in this uh, special issue is the topic of uh, a rare tumor, a low-grade mm -hmm. serous ovarian carcinoma. And uh, I really like the title of novel therapeutics. Uh, so I'm excited <laughs> to uh, go through the details of that article as well. And I'll start with you. I know what, what's uh, what what does it look like for the low-grade ovarian cancers now? I think that we're learning a lot about the biology of these tumors and learning that this is not a typical high-grade tumors and, and probably treatment should be different. And I, I would really like to highlight one of the studies uh, that was that is presented in the article, which is a, a small trial, a small phase two trial, including around 15 patients with low-grade serous ovarian cancer that weren't amenable for frontline surgery. I think that it was a study from, from your team in ND Anderson. And they found that giving that patients that received neoadjuvant abemacyclib, um, goceralin, and fulvestran had an objective response rate of around 60% and a lot of them who are able to, to have surgery. So I think that this is a big landscape change in, in these patients because a lot of these patients that are not amenable for surgery and would have a response rate of around 10, 15% with a standard platinum-based chemotherapy may have a chance for, for other opportunities. So I, this kind of studies is, is 
opening the, the, the landscape of, of treatment of high of low grade serous ovarian cancers and, and we need to continue working in, in these kind of rare cancers to, to improve patients' outcomes. Yeah, that, that's great. And it, and it kind of uh, uh, reminds me that, uh, you know, certainly, uh, as you know, Dr. David Gershenson, uh, it, it's just down the hall from me in clinic. And every time I go uh, ask him about treatment of <laughs> non-responsive, low-grade, that word keeps coming up, fulvestrin. Have you tried fulvestrin? Yeah. Have you considered fulvestrin? So uh, I'm excited to see uh, uh, those results as well. Uh, Rob, any, any thoughts on, uh, on the novel therapeutics of low-grade? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, this is this is where we've really been able to align uh, our be our increasing understanding of the molecular biology and the a number of targetable uh, pathways that seem to drive this cancer. You know, we spent and we give a lot of credit to Dr. Gershenson and um, and and colleagues for trying to um, get this specific disease to be something different than its namesake, uh, high grade serous ovarian cancer. So we really want this to be a different disease. And so, just as you just heard. You know how many how many how many high grade serous tumors actually have objective responses to hormones, right? So this is a different disease, and this whole article focuses on the opportunity to take advantage of the molecular biology that's driving this. And we have ongoing now phase three trials, phase two three trials that are actually targeting some of these unique molecular altruisms driving this cancer. Um, and I think the the future is extraordinarily bright uh, for uh, for this disease. Uh, and, and you know, unfortunately, because of its natural history, we get a lot of opportunity to try to uh, alter it. Yeah, and and that's really exciting to hear. Uh, phase twos and phase threes for this disease yeah. that, that was yeah. almost unheard of uh, several years back. Um, so now, uh, Rob, I'll ask you about this topic of. Um, PARP inhibitor resistance. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that and, and why is overcoming PARP inhibitor resistance uh, important? Well, I think as I mentioned earlier, you know, since uh, we now have greater understanding of the role of the BRCA alterations, uh, both one and two, and then some of the associated genes like RAD51CD and PALB2, PALB1, um, PALB2, the, 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 um, uh, the, the ability to, or the use of these PARP inhibitors early on in therapy uh, is becoming more, much more prolific. In fact, you know, you could consider it almost the standard of care that, it, that, that in a patient who has identified with a BRCA mutation in the frontline setting that not getting a PARP inhibitor may actually be a deviation from that standard of care if it's available, right? So, so we know that many of these patients are getting PARP inhibitors in the frontline setting um, and they're so active. So the question is what happens to patients who um, unfortunately recur or have innate in resistance to this really important drug, which seems to be aligned with the biology. And so there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of work to understand why that could occur. The most prevalent of which is, is, a, is an alteration, a, a second mutation, if you will, reversion, that restores the normal protein so that it can actually do the function that it's supposed to do, which is homologous recombination. So being able to attack the cancer's vulnerability knowing that underlying there may be an alteration in the molecular combination um, uh, proficiency and overcoming the whatever it was that caused this resistance to PARP inhibitors could provide an opportunity to restore that tumor to a state that not only would respond to PARP inhibitors, but maybe into some other novel therapies that are targeting that homologous recombination pathway. So it's super important to understand the why. <clears throat> and now what we're working on, and Dr. LaRue does a, a wonderful job, it going through the multiple different mechanisms on how that might be attained, such as adding a drug like an ATR inhibitor or adding a drug like a WE1 inhibitor or targeting a different part of the homologous recombination pathway like CHECK1 and CHECK2. 
And this is just the beginning. We have so much to do here. Um, and ultimately, if we can overcome this resistance, not only can we, not only, and I look at this as a really, a really opportunity, a real opportunity for even where we know it works. Mm. And that is identifying when these resistance mechanisms are starting to be induced and overcoming it before we have actual progression. That's so this great. would be, this would be actually affecting biology while it's happening. And that to me is very cool. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I know you have any uh, comments on that? Yeah, I think yeah, Rob did a fantastic job. Maybe <laughs> I, I would like I would like to add that um, we should try to identify this in clinic. And I think that we start to have some data, like we already had some data from, from the recovery studies that we may be able to find some of these resistance, that we're able to find some of these resistance mechanisms in blood, such as reversion mutations and um, it's important to know which is the, the alterations or, or the resistant mechanism of the, of the patient. So considering re-biopsying the patient when they progress to PARP inhibitors, seeing which is the, the mechanism of resistance may help us guide the next treatment strategies. For example, in the EVOLVE study that we're running Princess Margaret, that was um, uh, Stephanie Leroux, who is the primary author of the special issue paper, was, was the PI of that study. What we did is in patients that were progressing on prior PARP inhibitor, we retreated them with PARP inhibitor with Olaparib and which is an antiangiogenic. That, in that study, we were able to get a, a biopsy from the patient uh, prior to the start of the, of the combination of the antiangiogenic mm -hmm. anti and PARP inhibitor. And, some mm -hmm. patient, and, and we got se sequential blood, which will be presented later on, but was able to find some of the resistant mechanisms and also some patients had progression biopsy. So on that pretreatment biopsy, we were able to see which were the resistant mechanisms that were driving benefit or not from, from retreatment with PARP inhibitors and antiangiogenics. And we found that those patients that had reversion mutations and those patients that had a, a, a regulation of the ABCD1 gene, which encodes an, an efflux pump that, um, that is important to, to uh, bring the olaparib and the taxol out of the cell, were the ones that didn't respond to, to the retreatment with PARP inhibitor mm -hmm. and antiangiogenic. So this kind of studies gives us a good understanding of the biology of which patients may respond to, to retreatment with PARP inhibitors and also may help us guide which treatments we're, going, uh, we're uh, giving later on. Oh, so exciting! Such fantastic uh, findings. Uh, really looking forward to where this uh, this is going. Um, now, before we leave the topic of ovarian cancer, going back to another um, what you can call rare tumor, um, tumor that has always been treated, uh, just like the uh, other uh, serous carcinoma, but the clear cell ovarian carcinoma. Anything looking unique or specific uh, for this particular type of tumor? Um, yeah, dead silence because there's nothing. No, uh, no, no. Actually, this is another disease, you know, where we've gone back and looked into the molecular biology as to what's driving this tumor. We know that there's a high proportion of these patients that have an ARD1A mutation. And the various different drivers, both up and downstream for ARD1A regulation, um, are now turning into being relevant targets for um, uh, for treatment. For instance, uh, the uh, transcription factor EZH2, which is now, for now, which we have therapies that are, are, are uh, available, and we'll see some early data on that. But these are, you know, of this particular type of clear cell um, uh, cancer that occurs in the ovary has a lot of homology with what we see in the kidney. And so we've been able to adapt 
so angiogenesis approaches, some other novel targeted therapies in the AFPA3 kinase pathway that would be potentially alterable uh, and uh, of use in this particular disease. So we're really excited to start to uh, get into this, uh, uh, into the biology deeper in, in this particular tumor type and look for op new opportunities for this patient, which traditionally have very um, few effective options once it's metastatic and uh, recurrent. Absolutely. And I know. Maybe I, I, I would like to add that there may be a role with treatment with immunotherapy in this kind of cancer. Oh. And there is a lot of discussions about checkpoint inhibitor in this kind of tumors. It's mm. difficult to perform clinical trials with only clear cell carcinomas, but they have been included, for example, in some of the first line studies that are assessing PARP inhibitor, immune checkpoint inhibitor, mm. and, and antiangiogenics. So I think that it would be really cool, like it will be cool to see the responses of this subset of, of patients in the in the front, in frontline uh, clinical trials. And at the recurrent setting, the uh, we have several smaller studies that have assessed the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors, and there's certainly some signal of action. So there might be um, a good treatment option as well. Great. So now let's uh, let's move on to the topic of uh, endometrial cancer. I know I'll start with you. Um, there's an article titled "Biomarker-Driven Therapy in Endometrial <laughs> Cancer." Um, tell us what what that might be, and and how is this relevant? Well, as you know, the endometrial cancer has been divided in, in different uh, uh, subtypes, thanks to the to the classification, TCJ classifications, and we have been able to translate it to clinic and, and use it in clinic in, in usual practice, thanks to, to the PROMISE uh, algorithm, where we classify the tumors as per 53 abnormal, MMR deficient, and then um, copy number high and low. So um, initially, this classification, uh, sorry, uh, 53 abnormal, polymutant, uh, MMR deficient, and copy number uh, high. So, so initially, this classification was uh, used um, to guide adjuvant therapy, knowing that, for example, patients that have polymutations usually have an excellent prognosis and don't need uh, adjuvant therapy. Uh, however, now we have also been able to use it in the advanced uh, or in the recurrent disease, as we know that the biology of each of these subtypes is different. So for example, um, MMR deficient tumors respond really well to immunotherapy. And there have been several, uh, a couple of phase two, large phase one, two studies assessing treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy, showing excellent response rate of around 50% and long duration of responses. In them, um, contrary to that, we have the combination of immunotherapy and antiangiogenics with uh, pembrolizumab and lembatinib. A phase three trial showed increase in both overall survival and PFS. And this is usually a type of a strategy that is uh, used in MMR proficient patients. And that's the current approval for, for uh, of the FDA. Of course, polymutant tumors also, we want to treat them with, with immune treatment. And then we have the 53 abnormal tumors, which have certainly a different bi biology. This subset of, of tumors is usually enriched by serous type of endometrial cancer. And there are different strategies emerging in this kind of, of, of uh, a subtype of endometrial cancer, including a phase two study assessing WIG1 inhibitor adabosertive, which showed an interesting response rate uh, uh, with, um, with this drug. 
and um, other studies assessing, for example, trastuzumab, which is an anti-HER2 therapy associated with, with frontline carboplatin and paclitaxel. As we know that uh, approximately 25% of patients with serous carcinomas have uh, alterations in HER2. It's amazing yeah. how, how far we've moved from the, the time when we used to make decisions about treatment based on, is it a grade one or a grade three? <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, and, and as you can hear, you know, this topic is so complex that we split this into, you know, three different chat, uh, three different papers. And so what you've heard is that this, you know, so, so when you hear something like biomarker driven, what you're talking about is that there's a, uh, again, a predictive biomarker you know, something that would say, hey, listen, if this bio, if this alteration exists, this drug should be used. And what we've learned, um, and, and you're going to see very shortly, you know, the efficacy of using, for instance, immunotherapy in, in, in particularly in deficient MMR uh, tumors, uh, it, it, you know, upcoming the two randomized phase three trials that are both positive. This is going to change the landscape. So what you've heard already is, is that, you know, the molecular classification of endometrial cancer is now being incorporated into the staging that's how important it is <laughs> into the staging. So, you know, we used to say, well, you know, your grade, you know, your stage 1A, um, B, you know, your stage category plus the histology, as you said, grade 1, 2, or 3. <clears throat> now, we'll be looking at this in the context of other molecular alterations to make definitive um, recommendations regarding therapy. And so, as you can see, we have a chapter on immunotherapy or a paper just on immunotherapy alone, because this mm -hmm. has completely exploded in the presence of this, of this isolated biomarker. And then this idea of molecular classification, which you just heard about, <clears throat> you know, the one largest category in this, in this group is actually the no specific mutational profile, which has a bunch of different other targetable <laughs> agents. For instance, P53 wild type now is a targetable um, alteration uh, that we see coexisting with um, uh, our endometrial, in our endometrial tumors with, uh, with MMR status. But there are treatments uh, such as the selective inhibitors of nuclear export or um, these exportant inhibitors, uh, selenexor being one, that has been studied prospectively and now has another phase three trial um, planned to address mm -hmm. this P53 wild type situation. So, and, not, and that doesn't include hormones. And remember <laughs> the day we used to say, well, the only approved therapy for endometrial cancer is Megase. Yes. You know, so, so, so we've come a long way, but you know, this is so important that we actually had to do three papers on this topic alone. And it doesn't, and it, and it just continues to evolve. Yeah, and, and each one a really great paper to read, uh, absolutely. And by the way, Rob, I, I, I don't remember those days of Megas. I've heard of those days of Megas. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on, I'm get too... close to that camera. I can see that gray hair. I know you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too young to remember those days. Uh -huh, uh, sure. <laughs> so obviously lots of important topics here, and I, I want to switch a little bit over to uh, cervical cancer, and, and and I know obviously you you talked about immunotherapy. Um, what's what's exciting, and what are the advances in immunotherapy in cervical cancer? Uh, Rob, I'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, I have this uh, slide I love I love to show that talks about the decades of work we did with platinum, mm -hmm. right? For patients with uh, uh, with, and I'll speak just I'll, I'll, I'll start this discussion just with the advanced recurrent stage because that's where we've seen a lot of drug development, but I think prevention is even more important. But let me just say that, you know, I share this slide that shows that for decades, we, we brought basically platinum into the space for recurrent metastatic cervical cancer. And we basically kind of hit a plateau for mm -hmm. like two decades, right? And we tried adding two and different drugs and three drugs, it didn't really get anywhere. Then we had bevacizumab show up. 
And mm. all of a sudden this, this, and if you think about it, you know, the pre-invasive changes we see in cervix cancer are related to the vascularization changes that we see in the tumor microenvironment. We see that on colposcopy. So it would make sense that you would use a drug that would target angiogenesis as a therapy. And so bang, in GOG240, we increase the, um, the overall survival expectation mm. in this patient population by 50% overnight. Mm. And then we said, well, you know what? We, this is a viral infection it ought to have an immune signature. And sure enough, it did. And we did a lot of work with single agent immune checkpoint inhibitors. And we actually showed that we could shrink tumors, make these patients live longer, uh, delay their progressions. And so we added it to that backbone. And again, another 50% increase. So if you look back to the 80s, to the 2020s, we have tripled, tripled the expectation for overall survival with the combination of chemotherapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors, and antigenesis inhibition. That's just amazing to mm -hmm. see that in a life. But that's what that has, you know, has basically just been the backbone of drawing interest back into the space for drug development. Because for years we had nothing, mm -hmm. nothing. It was like you got one therapy. If you didn't do it, that was, a, yeah. then that was it. So, so we're super excited. The immunotherapy angle on this is just exploding. Uh, all different types of uh, immune um, immune um, um, uh, opportunities from everything from using tumor infiltrating lymphocytes to um, uh, therapeutic vaccines to uh, combination immune checkpoint um, therapies. It's it, it's just it's just amazing, and that's just the immunotherapy. We also have the antibody drug conjugates, which we also devote a chapter on, yeah. which brings in again another targetable alteration aligned with the drug. And, uh, and like I said, it's it's just been wonderful. Yeah, I think that the, you're absolutely right. The, the scope of of the innovation and uh, and and what's been found in the, in the last several uh, years has been amazing. And and just yesterday, I was giving a talk to to the fellows about exenterations, and and I was I was mentioning that in the past that that was basically the only option because we didn't really have much in terms of offering patients therapeutics uh, as, a, mm -hmm. as an alternative option to that, where, where that um, uh, schema has changed completely now. Um, I know your, your thoughts on uh, immunotherapy and cervical cancer. So I, uh, I totally agree with, with Rob, all the excitement. I share all this <laughs> excitement. Maybe like the only thing I would like to add is that thanks to adding pembrolizumab in the frontline treatment of, of, of cervical cancer with uh, platinum-based chemotherapy plus minus antiangiogenics, we have not only increased the overall survival, but also the quality of life of patients. And this is not achieved many times. We struggle to improve quality of the primary quality of life outcomes in most of the clinical trials, and we have achieved this in cervical cancer. So this is, this is a big uh, step forward. Fantastic. So um, two more topics that I want to cover. I want to be respectful of your time before Rob has to go on to his next conference call as well. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, uh, you, you mentioned it briefly, uh, Rob, I'll start with you. Um, antibody drug conjugates. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that and, and how that has impacted um, gynecologic cancers. Oh yeah, this is this is again. I, you know, I, I know I get excited about all this stuff, but this is also another really exciting thing because <laughs> an antibody drug conjugate is just what that term is. So it is it's an antibody that's linked to a warhead, and in most cases is chemo a chemotherapy agent that can't be delivered intravenously, and then it brought and it's connected by a linker that can be dissolved once it's incorporated to itself. So this is your classic smart bomb. You give it to the blood, it circulates undissociated, gets to the cancer that expresses the target, 
The antibody binds to it, gets brought into the cell, breaks down or gets metabolized so that it releases the chemotherapy, it kills the cell. And because of that, it also releases chemotherapy into the tumor microenvironment, which then causes this bystander effect. And we think probably some immune activation. So it's, um, it's a fantastic model and it has worked extraordinarily well. Um, we have uh, in all of these diseases that we're, we're talking about today, basically have seen ADCs now enter into the clinic. Uh, as I mentioned, in cervical cancer, we have one already that's got accelerated proof uh, that we're hoping to get full approval uh, soon. In, in ovarian cancer, we have another ADC, Merfituximab, which we expect to see uh, confirmatory trial uh, approval and approval later this year. Uh, and it, that's just the start. In the mitral cancer, as, as was mentioned, we have uh, HER2 um, uh, expression. Even in the low cases, there are now ADCs targeting towards that. And there's a number of antigens that are shared by all of these, um, by many tumor types. So it's not just limited to the GYN space, such as TROPE2, which for now also have uh, you know active program in breast cancer, now in, making its way into endometrial cancer. So this particular strategy of therapy is also becoming very, very popular. A number of drugs looking at um, not only novel antibodies, but novel platforms by which to deliver the targets and novel targets. So this is, um, uh, and it's not, and, and the construction of these, of these particular ABCs is so, is so incredible that you can actually put on multiple different targets onto the drug at the same time. Uh, onto the same uh, 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 therapeutic backbone. So it's, this is, like I said, this is the beginning, but it's already showing its merit. And as I said, well, we should have some approved, uh, full approved, regular approved uh, drugs already in the clinic. Fantastic. I know. Your thoughts? Oh, he's playing the, he's the world leader in, in ADC cervical <laughs> cancer. So what can I add? <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me uh, let me ask you, uh, and I know I'll start with you. Uh, I think that there's another really interesting article, and and I have to tell you, I, I read this one several times because I really liked all the points that were raised uh, regarding the outcomes and the endpoints of relevance in GYN oncology clinical trials. Um, can you highlight some of the you know takeaway messages from from this article? Yeah, so so I was really happy to participate on this this paper regarding the the outcomes and the surrogate outcomes in in gynec cancer trials. Um, so the the, the clinical clinically meaningful improvements in overall survival and quality of life, of course, are, are the gold standard to measure benefit of new therapeutic strategies. But um, there are some alternative endpoints that give us really, really important information and sometimes are the primary outcomes of the studies, which are progression-free survival and other secondary outcomes that give us good information, especially in maintenance studies, such as progression-free survival too, time to second subsequent treatment, among others. So um, there has been lots of discussion lately, and maybe uh, Rob can discuss about it also mm -hmm. because there was a good discussion in, in, in Esmo Gaini regarding the importance of selecting the, the primary outcome and, and whether secondary outcomes, such as if, uh, for example, in the PARP inhibitor setting, when we're, try when we're seeing the results of overall survival of PARP inhibitor maintenance in the, in the recurrent setting, how this should be interpreted and whether the trial is has sufficient power to, to look at this kind of outcomes. So, so we discussed all that in the paper. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Rob, what are your thoughts regarding that? I love it. I love this paper. <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm so excited. 
Yeah, I've been looking for a platform to like stand on so I could like scream this from the rooftop stuff. So um, yeah, so uh, I, you know, this is, I just think it's so important that we stay uh, true to what the statistical designs are and how we interpret them. I think they get blood, they, they get they get blurred, the lines get blurred and the, the strength of conviction is made on, on uh, exploratory kind of endpoints that are basically hypothesis generating. People somehow forgot that. So I love the fact that we've dedicated an article to this. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really true. You know, as we've been more and more successful in our initial, our initial therapies, what we've done is we've extended that time period that patients live post-progression. And, some, and we've known now for almost two decades that our statistical power is lost exponentially with the duration of post-progression survivorship. So it places an incredible burden on us to design trials that either have massive treatment effects that are somehow able to be preserved. And we have done that. Hmm. We've done that. But also to take into consideration sample size to be able to preserve that benefit uh, over the life of the, uh, of the expectation for the patient. So we lose statistical power, which causes us to drive up the sample size. And we can't do 4,000 patient trials. So we got to be very smart. And some of the strategies there is, is, first of all, recognize that this is an issue so that we don't hold all of our, our, um, our interpretation of the efficacy of drugs on overall survival when there's all of the potential confounding that can happen in that time period. But also, as, we, as we've been talking about this whole podcast, is that this idea of coming up with a predictive biomarker that should give us that big delta between the two curves that has at least an opportunity to extend it through the next line of therapy. And so that's why we think that um, a second, you know, secondary endpoint such as PFS2 or second PFS might be actually, you know, more relevant to understand the efficacy of the drug and the impact of the prior therapy on that drug. So this is a great, I love this. I love, love, love this article. Thank you so much, Anos, for doing that. Um, but it's, uh, it's super important for, for our readers to, 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 to get through. Well, thank you so much to both of you once again. I mean, this this is uh, this has been really exciting. And actually, I, after doing this podcast, I really want to go back and read all those articles again. <laughs> so uh, we both make it uh, obviously very very exciting and anticipating uh, this uh, special issue coming out March six. Uh, there are many other topics that that we didn't cover, but certainly we encourage our readers to look at uh, updates on cervical cancer prevention. Also, actually, uh, the impact of uh, immunotherapy in the treatment of gestational trophoblastic tumors, among others. So really thank you both so much for participating in the podcast. I also want to add um, a thank you to Antonio Gonzalez, who is the third uh, guest editor in this uh, special issue. And uh, once again, uh, really great work to all of you. Uh, and we thank you. And again, we look forward to, to this special issue. And, uh, and we invite all of our, our, our readers to, to uh, look at this uh, particular uh, special issue, 2023 IJGC. Thank you. Thanks, Pedro. And thank, thank you for giving us the opportunity to do something like this. This is a great time to, to, uh, to be able to put all this together. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Pedro.